Morning, Life Church. Good to see you. And it's true. It's good to see you. Thanks for coming out. If you're a guest, there's a Green Connect card nearby. Fill that information out, and following the gathering, you can go through the double doors that say cafe. And it's true, there is a cafe there. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? So go to the cafe, and there's donuts, bagels, coffee, juice waiting for you, and a gift bag. Just turn this thing in, and boom, the great exchange takes place. So um, thanks again for coming. Hey, this Friday, by the way, is Good Friday. And we're having a Good Friday gathering here at 6.30 at Live Church. So uh, just a heads up, um, um, why is it Good Friday? Because Jesus died, but he didn't stay in the grave. That's why it's good. And he died for your sins and my sins, and that's good. So um, come and celebrate uh, with great music and uh, teaching from the Bible about Jesus going to the cross. So... Um, hey, today is Palm Sunday, right? Next Sunday is Easter. That makes today Palm Sunday. What's that all about? Well, uh, I find it interesting because if you go to Jerusalem uh, back in time and you find uh, the folks uh, in that city, they start out very, very proactive in pursuing Jesus. And then just a few days later, they're throwing them under the bus. They're basically, they're saying, crucify him. Same people. That's kind of a picture of humanity, how easy it is for us to be inconsistent in our walk with Jesus. And you want to know something, that's not honoring to him. So um, let's go to John 12, uh, verse 12, as we look at that particular story on that first Palm Sunday. The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. Now many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. So just like those that had heard and seen Lazarus raised from the dead, they were out telling people about it. You have an opportunity this week to invite your friends and family to come next Sunday to Life Church. Why? Because we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is a great, great event We celebrate it because Jesus conquered sin, death, and the grave. And uh, that's good news for you and for me, right? So let's take full advantage of it this week. And uh, like I mentioned a few days later in Matthew 27, Jesus is arrested. He's, He's tortured. He's beaten. 
And there's a conversation going around with the crowd. Check this out, verse 20. The leading priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. And so the governor asked again, which of these two do you want me to release to you? And the crowd shouted back, Barabbas. And Pilate responded, then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? And they shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. And friends, that's a picture, once again, of humanity. When things get you excited, you're good. When things kind of mellow out, you follow the crowd and you yell, crucify him. And so this morning, I just want to encourage you that as a follower of Jesus Christ living in 2019, it is the goal of Jesus for you to live a consistent life that's honoring to him. And you're a great promoter of the kingdom of God by the way you live for Jesus. That's what he wants. So may this be a tipping point in your life if you've been on a roller coaster spiritually, that you settle it once and for all and say, I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to do that. And I'm going to live a consistent life. I'm not going to live a perfect life. That's impossible. But I can live a a consistent life with the help of the Lord. So let's do that. I want to take you, uh, if I could, uh, into my home uh, yesterday. On Saturdays, I typically... Uh, my off, I have an office in my home, and it's located in the front of our house. We have a picture window. I, I have a desk that looks out. And uh, while I'm um, working on the notes for Sunday's talk, I, I run worship music. I, um, it goes from one song to another. Yesterday, a song came on that I had never heard before, and it kind of caught my attention. So when it was finished, I went back and I listened to it again. And when it was over, I went back and listened to it again. And I did that several times. And I went back to it later on as well, just listening to it. And as you know, God's presence fills the universe. It's everywhere at the same time. But there are times that we can identify when God's presence is is almost tangible. And that's what happened yesterday. And so I I would like to to play a clip from that song. And um, let it be a motivation today. If you've been struggling spiritually, if you've uh, felt like God is far away, uh, whatever you're going through in life, Uh, Let this song uh, talk to you as the Lord uh, taps you on the shoulder. Uh, Let's listen.
Almighty God. We get to live for him. What a mighty God. It's not plural, not a mighty of one God's plural or whatever. It's mighty God. He's the one true God, and we get to live for him. And I tell you what, what a privilege that is. Lord, this morning, I want to thank you that you are a mighty God, and sometimes we have to be reminded of that. We allow life to beat us up. We get run over. We become wounded. We become hardened by life. But I thank you this morning that you are a mighty God who keeps pursuing each one of us. I pray today, Lord, as a mighty God, you will show yourself strong here. I pray for every person in this room, and you know them, Lord. You know everything about them. You know exactly what they're going through. And so I pray that you will personally invade each one of our spaces today. May your Holy Spirit have freedom to speak, to convict, to challenge, to encourage each one of us. Why? Because we've been with you. Today, let your word, God's word, the Bible, explode within our hearts as we have the privilege of reading it and applying it to our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you. You've been so good to us. And we commit these moments to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, if you're a guest, we'd like to uh, welcome you. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles at the back table. They're free. You can keep it. We encourage you to read it because, because reading the Bible will change your life. It's changed my life. On the back of your program, there's an outline with this morning's talk as well, and um, we would encourage you to track with it, fill in those blanks, and uh, follow along. Just a heads up as well, the Tom Raymond's mother passed away last night. We've been praying for her, uh, and so remember to pray for the, for the Raymond family, okay? What a mighty God we serve. Hey, anybody else need a Bible, by the way? Put you stick, your, stick your hand up so we can see it, and uh, we'll get you to it. Bob Kuznick is on the Rome out there uh, in, in Marshall Conrad. So anybody need a Bible? Um, by all means, take it. Yeah. We're going to go back in history, 1744. I think that was before any of us were born, right? 1744, we're going to uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. That's where uh, the College of William and Mary is located. And uh, back then, they sent a letter to six Native American chiefs offering a free education. 
uh, to 12 of the young braves. And the, the chiefs, uh, as they read that letter, they, they um, talked it over and they uh, wrote a letter in response to that offer. And, and this is what they said. Several of our young people were formerly brought up at the colleges of the northern provinces. They were instructed in all your sciences. But when they came back to us, they were bad runners, ignorant of every means of living in the woods, unable to bear cold or hunger, knew neither how to build a cabin, take a deer, or kill an enemy, spoke our language imperfectly, and were therefore neither fit for hunters, warriors, or counselors. And they concluded they were totally good for nothing. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's a nice way to conclude your letter. So they weren't finished. The chiefs went on to make an offer to uh, those in leadership at, at the College of William and Mary. And they said, if the gentlemen of Virginia will send us a dozen of their sons, we will take care of their education, instruct them in all we know, and make men of them. How do you think those folks at the College of William and Mary responded? Who knows? I, I wasn't there. But anyway, the point of this dialogue is we as individuals, we have choices to make on who we're going to allow to influence our lives. And these Indian chiefs recognized that they could not afford to send their young men to this particular place because they had learned that um, they would come back changed from the way they wanted them to live their lives. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the church in Ephesus, basically is saying the same thing to the church. He's saying... As followers of Jesus Christ, you have a lot of influences all around you. There are good influences, there are negative influences, and you have to be wise on who you allow to influence your life. And I would submit that to you this morning as well. Who are you allowing to speak into your life, and who are you allowing to influence your life. I think it's good to pause and ask that question in a very honest way. And so today we're going to continue uh, our walk through the book of Ephesians chapter 4 and we're going to pick it up at verse 17. On the back of your program those verses are printed out for you as well. But if you have a Bible it's always good to open it and, and read it. Um, and follow along. So here we go. Ephesians four seventeen through 24. Notice the title to that paragraph is Living as Children of Light. That's what Paul is about to say. With the Lord's authority, I say this. Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. 
But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Ladies and gentlemen, as a follower of Jesus Christ, and if you call yourself one, people are watching you, and your life should be lived different from those who are not followers of Christ. That's the way it should. This section, Paul is writing to the believers at the church of Ephesus, and he's saying, You need to leave your former life behind. Remember, he's writing to the church. And because of that, you should leave. uh, There should be a change in your behavior in the process. And as each of us knows, when you put your faith in Christ, we come as we are. We come as sinners. We come with all our stuff. And we bring it to Christ. He forgives us. He washes us, cleanses us from all of our sin. But that's not the end. Because the rest of our lives, so we have, we have uh, justification when you put your faith in Christ, sanctification. It's that process of becoming more and more like Jesus uh, until we go to be with him one day. We know that we cannot live a perfect life as long as we're living on this planet. But what you and I can do is we can live a consistent life as we follow Christ. And that's what Paul's writing about here to the church. And so um, we need to listen to what the Lord has to say as we read his word, as we become more like him. That's what Paul's encouraging us to do. And so number one in your notes, stop in Jesus' name. Stop in Jesus' name. Verse 17, with the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly uh, confused. So a couple things. First of all, with the Lord's authority, I say this, Paul is not writing to the church with his own way of thinking, with his own convictions. He's saying that the Lord has spoken to me, church, and so what he spoke to me, I'm passing on to you. And so he says, with the Lord's authority. He's saying, I'm saying this to get your attention because this is not Paul. Paul, I'm writing this letter, but I am saying to you, with the Lord's authority, the same way a police officer would go out into the street and he would put his hand up and the the police officer has the authority to stop the traffic just by putting his hand up in the air. Paul is saying, I am writing this with the Lord's authority. And he's saying, I'm saying it to get your attention because it's serious. Live no longer as the Gentiles do. Now, In that culture, you had the Jews, and if you weren't a Jew, you were considered a Gentile. 
When Paul's writing this, he's not knocking the Gentiles. What he's referring to, the Gentiles refer to your old life, your past life, your life as a sinner. That's what he's referring to. Because there were Gentiles in the, in the church in Ephesus. There were Jews at the church in Ephesus as well. So he's not bashing the Gentiles collectively. What he's saying is, if you're living as you used to, you're referring back to your lifestyle as a Gentile, your pre-Christ days. So it's interesting that, that Paul is writing this to the church so evidently, something must be going on inside the church. And here, let's, put, let's put some clarity on it. First of all, the church, after they put their faith in Christ, some have drifted back into their old way of living. Mm-hmm. Some have put on their old clothes, their old nature, so to speak. Not the whole church, but some have. And so Paul, as the, the Spirit of God has revealed to him, he's writing this to the church by the Lord's authority. And I want to say this morning, by the Lord's authority, the Lord is speaking to you and he's challenging you. Now, he's not, he's not, uh, he's not angry with you. But when God sees compromise in our lives, it grieves him. It, it breaks his heart. And when you love somebody, and I tell you something, you can see it in their eyes. When you hurt someone, you can see the pain. And when you grow close to the Lord, you can see the pain that you bring him. And so that's why Paul is speaking really right off the bat here in a very strong way by the Lord's authority. And you need to stop living a compromised lifestyle. That's what he's saying in summary. You need to stop it because you're hurting, you're grieving uh, the heart of God. Why? Because they are hopelessly confused. When you have, have compromise or mediocrity or there, there's a little bit of God and a little bit of the world in you, you are what? You are hopelessly confused. That's what happens. That's the road that you're on. And so Paul is saying your life must no longer resemble those who are still in their sin without God. And um, when we sin, we know that it kind of messes up with our thinking. We start, uh, uh, we start having wrong thinking patterns. We uh, start thinking what was wrong at what time. Then we say, no, that, w- that was really wasn't so bad. So we, we give ourselves permission to continue sinning. And, and, and our mind gets a little foggy in the process. That's what Paul is writing about, that they're hopelessly confused. Listen, as, as a follower of Jesus Christ, we have to have core values. We need to have a biblical worldview. We can't allow what our culture says, you know, uh, to influence us, to change our core values. The Bible is true. You know, Jay Seeger last Sunday, when he was talking about the timeline for creation, and he said what's happening in the Christian community today is... Christians are compromising the, the beginning, uh, the timeline of, of when the Garden of Eden existed. And as you heard last Sunday, he believes it's at the 6,000-year mark, and I, I'm all with him on that. What happens is when Christians say, well, it's not a big deal when that happened. Yes, it is a big deal. 
It is a big deal because we go to the garden and it's there that sin entered the world. We know that because that's what Genesis says. If it's foggy when the garden was, then it's why, why did Jesus have to come? See, it, 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 it dilutes the purpose of Jesus coming to rescue you and me from sin. So we can identify that sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden. And that's why you have to read the Bible trusting it, because it is true. It doesn't change. And it doesn't change to fit your, world, your moral corp, compass, you know? It doesn't change. It, it's, it's always the same. And so Paul says what happens is when we, when, uh, we are living our old lifestyle or our old ways have crept back in, he says it leads to a dark mind. That's point one, point one. Look at verse 18a. Their minds are full of darkness. What happens is we begin to go on a, on a, a spiral. Um, it, it brings us deeper and deeper into sin. And um, this image here of, of uh, uh, if you've been in the ocean uh, you've been in Lake Michigan, one of the lakes. There's times they'll have flags up, a red flag, and the reason is because there's a strong undertow. What that means is the water looks like it's going this way on the top, and it kind of gives a sense of false security. But underneath, on the bottom, there's a strong current that is pulling you out. That's what sin does. Sin, sin is like this vacuum that... It, it pulls you in. It pulls you in deeper. It pulls you in darker. And um, it's, a dark, it's a dark place. Nazi Vaz, she's an Afghan woman, explained to the Chicago Tribune foreign correspondent Liz Slide the reason why some Afghan women continue to wear burqas, the full body coverings mandated by the Taliban, even if they don't like them or if they're no longer forced to wear them, She said, we have lived in darkness for so long that now we are afraid of the light. See, that happens. That happens. The absence of spiritual understanding leads to dark thinking. Many years ago, I went scuba diving for the first time, and we went to a a lake you know, you, you see pictures of water where the light, the sun hits it, and you can see all the way to the bottom. Well, this lake, it wasn't like that. It was kind of murky water. You went down past five feet, it was dark. So I had all my scuba gear on, you know, and I'm going down. And it, it was pitch black. It was, it was dark. Everything inside me was, get out of here. Get to the light. That's instinct, right? It's the same thing. You've been, you've been wired, so to speak. When you go into a dark room, the first thing you do is you hit the light switch so that the light will destroy the darkness. You are not created for darkness. And Paul is saying when you compromise, when you live the way you used to live, or you live as as a non-follower of Christ, you have a dark mind. It darkens your mind. It changes your thinking. 
And so Romans 1, uh, verses 21 and 22, Paul, writing to the church in Rome, he says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks, and they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Now, all we have to do is look at our culture in our country today where we have intentionally pushed God out of our culture. You are not welcome here, God. We don't want you here. We want to keep you in the church only. Well, what happens is when, when that happens in a culture, Paul says they start thinking of foolish ideas about who God is, and that's why the nature deal, white witchcraft, the Wiccans, is, is gaining traction today. That's foolish, that you worship what God created instead of worshiping God himself. That's foolish, wouldn't you say? But that's gaining traction in our culture today. As a result, their minds become dark and confused, and they become utter fools. I, I think we, all I need to do is stand back, and we see that happening right before our eyes. That's proof. Number two, what happens from the dark mind, there's a hard heart. Look at the verse 18b. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. That word harden, by the way, in the Greek means a stone harder than marble. It, it means a heart of stone. Those of you that have marble countertops in your home, you know how hard that stone is. That Paul is saying, when, when you uh, drift away from God, when you um, compromise your lifestyle, your heart has to become hard like stone, hardened like marble. And I can tell you that's a dangerous place to be. Because the Spirit of God is constantly coming after you. That's the incredible love of God. He comes after you. Even when we're wandering, He's coming after us. And for you to push that away, you intentionally have to harden your heart to say no to that. Paul is saying, no, 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 you, you, you don't want that to happen. Not only does your heart become hardened, but... It says they wander far from the life God gives. God, God has his hand on your life. God has purpose for your life. It says here that they wander far from the life God gives. Amy Carroll uh, tells a story about her pet dog, B.C. Now, I don't know what B.C. stands for, uh, but she says that he was a great source of distress and stress in our family. In fact, uh, B.C. earned uh, a nickname called Houdini because uh, having, having a long, long hound and short legs, he was truly an escape artist. Yeah, there was no fence high enough, no enclosure secure enough to keep him contained. He scaled, dug, jumped, schemed his way to freedom outside our yard on a regular basis. And because our whole family adored him, Despite his wandering heart, we worked hard to try to keep him home. 
We built a fence we believe would protect him from the outside world. My boys played with him. We fed him very good dog food. We had great snacks. We, we had toys for him. We even gave him a soft dog bed. And yet B.C. wandered. B.C. roamed our neighborhood. And sometimes we got reports of him on the streets miles away. But he eventually came home, sometimes pursued by the dog catcher. And our family worried about him when he left the safe haven of our home. And Amy says, how I can identify with B.C.? Because I tend to wander as well. The hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, written back in 1758 by Robert Robinson, has these lyrics. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for my courts above. You see, people were wandering all the way back in the 1700s, weren't they? And they're still wandering today. You see, God has created a place of safety for us with his word, hasn't he? His commandments are designed to protect us, not to restrict us. He gives us good gifts of mercy, grace, and forgiveness to remind us to stay near to him. He pours his love on us, draws us close into his family. And yet, our, our heart still wanders. Amy says, I spent 14 years chasing B.C. around our neighbor, neighborhood. My love for him kept me pursuing him and finding ways to keep him safe in our yard. God's love does the same toward us. Let's join the Lord in staying in those protective boundary lines he's giving us through praise and thankfulness that will bind our hearts to him. Yeah, sometimes I ignore his truth and launch out on my own. But she says, I have learned that Psalm 103 is a good reminder for me of binding my heart to the Lord's all the benefits, all the things he gives me. So when I want to wander, I go to Psalm 103 for reasons to praise and thank him. Let's read that. Let all that I am praise the Lord with my whole heart. I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death. And crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagles. It's a good thing. To bind our hearts to the Lord's. Through praise and gratitude to him. Romans 1.18 describes people. Who don't do that? Wicked people suppress the truth by their wickedness or literally by their wickedness they prevent the truth from being known. 
That's what happens when we have a hard heart. We don't see God as he is, you know. We see him as we want him to be. We, we change God. We think God will be okay with our compromise, with our rationale on the way we want to live our lives. But friend, when you read the Bible, that's not the case. You, uh, you've heard me say this before, but at a men's retreat, 550 men were surveyed with the following question. What causes you to disconnect from God on a continual, habitual, or fatal basis? And over 90% of the men indicated that they disconnected from God on a regular basis because of sin. You see, when we sin, sin separates us from God. You know, we feel distant from him, don't we? We, we tend not to read our Bibles. We avoid Christian friends. We, like Adam and Eve, the first thing that happened when they sinned is they went into hiding. We tend to go into hiding from God because we feel uncomfortable. And all the while, the Lord is coming after us saying, I'm waiting to forgive you and restore you. That's his heart. And so, Isaiah 5.20, when our hard heart has its way, for those who say that evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark. That's what happens with our thinking. And Paul is shooting a flare in our lives this morning to say the very same thing. How has your thinking changed because you've been compromised? Three, a shameless life. Verse 19, they have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly eagerly practice every kind of impurity. Now, uh, we have to put this in context. When Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus, uh, there was the temple there for the goddess Diana. And I can tell you that there was a lot of immorality going on in that temple. There were temple prostitutes. There was drunkenness. There was all kinds of perversion at this temple. That was the environment that the church in Ephesus had had experienced over the years. They had businesses that were making money off of the goddess Diana. So, I mean, it it was a happening place. People came from all over the known world at that time to see the goddess Diana and worship her. And so when, when Paul came in and, and they were taught about Jesus Christ and people put their faith in Jesus, they let go of worshiping the goddess Diana and instead began to worship the one true God. What a mighty God we serve. That's the context where Paul writes, hey, church, Some of you have drifted back in that kind of living. There's no sense of shame. In fact, that literally means a vice that throws off all restraint and flaunts itself. You become enslaved to the sin. You don't control the sin. The sin is now controlling you. You crave, you crave it. You can't let it go. It controls you. It possesses you. 
Martin Luther put it this way. He said, sin is the ultimate form of cannibalism. It is consuming yourself to death. That's what sin does. You consume yourself to death. To bring that image a little closer to home, if you're an Eskimo in Alaska and you're hunting wolves, what they do is they take their hunting knife and they put it on a stick and they take the blood of an animal and they they put it on the blade until it freezes and then they they put some more blood on until it freezes and they do that until the entire blade is covered in frozen blood. And then they take that that stick with the knife on it and stick it into the snow. And a wolf, of course, has a sensitive nose and he picks up that scent of the bait on that blade. And he begins licking that blood off the blade. And he licks faster and faster because he's consumed with the taste of blood. But he doesn't realize that his own blood now is mixing in with the blood that was originally on that blade. And in the morning, you find that wolf dead in the snow. Friend, let me tell you something. That's what sin does. That's what sin does. We're often like that wolf, aren't we? And we find sin tasting so good, we can't stop licking it. And it'll kill you. It'll kill you spiritually. Someone said, sin, it takes you where you don't want to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay. It costs you more than you want to pay. Paul is encouraging you and I this morning to let it go. Number two, who me? Verse 20. So Paul is painting this picture to the church on the front end, saying he he walks through what sin does, how it compromises us, how it really destroys us with dark minds, hard hearts, and shameless living. And now he says, but that isn't what you learned about Christ. Now, that word you, you want to underline that, because in the original language, the placement of this in the Greek places... Emphasis on the word you. And so when he writes, but that isn't what you learned about Christ. It's as if um, in a crowd, Paul is standing out front and he looks at you personally and he takes his index finger and he points it towards you. 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 And, and of course, what do you say? You say, who me? Who me? Uh, that, that happened to me when I was uh, in sixth grade, you know. I was messing around in the classroom, and, and we had an English teacher who was a former Marine, and he had a flat top. So, man, the dude, the dude was tough, you know. And so he said, you, and I said, who, me? Get out into the hall. So he marched me out into the hall. And then he started using his index finger, his marine index finger, and he started drilling it into my chest. Boom, boom, boom. Took my breath away. So did I ever mess around in his class again? No, no, I I learned my lesson. 
Paul is speaking to the church in Ephesus and he's saying, you, he's getting our attention. He's zeroing in. The camera's moving closer so that it's not like you can look behind you and you're hoping somebody else. He's saying you. He's saying me. And so that's, that's, where, that's where we go. Now, the Ephesians were taught about the life of Jesus Christ. And they had put their faith in Christ. They had experienced his forgiveness. And Jesus is the solution. He's the one that can set you and I free Uh, from the sin that wants to wrap itself around us. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is where a lot of Christians kind of go off track. We put too much emphasis about avoiding sin. You know, we read our Bibles. Can Can I do this? Can I do that? And so we look at sin. And so this microphone stand represents sin. All right? And so we we live our lives thinking, I've got to avoid sin. Now over here we have, we'll say this is Jesus because he's the light, right? So this is Jesus over here. And this is sin over here. And this is us. This is we in the middle here, all right? So what happens is when we live our lives and we say we're followers of Jesus Christ, we should not get caught up in what I can't do we should, our goal in life should be, I'm going to go closer to Jesus. That's my goal. I want to get close to Jesus. And guess what happens when we get close to Jesus? We move farther away from sin. It's automatic. When we become more like Jesus, the temptation of sin isn't so attractive or strong any longer. And you'll find that to be true. That's where the joy of being a follower of Jesus Christ comes in because when you move closer to him and you're reading his word and you find out exactly who he is and his character and how much he loves you, man, that is the motivation for you to even move closer to where he is. Don't worry about what I can't do. Listen, I had a conversation with a, with a dude a little while ago. And I was talking to him about the Lord, and, and he says, does that mean I, have to, I can't do this and I can't go there? And I said, man, you've got it all wrong. That's all wrong. Because, first of all, we give Jesus our lives. We live for him. He changes us. We allow him to work in and through us. And you know what I know something is? You turn your eyes upon Jesus, the things of this world will grow strangely dim. It's automatic. And it makes walking with Jesus fun because you're dropping the rules and the regulations and you're living because you love him and he loves you. So, James 4.8 in the message puts it this way, so let God work his will in you, yell a loud no to the devil and watch him scamper. Say a quiet yes well, I, I would say, Paul, can we just say a loud yes to God? And he'll be there in no time. Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. The fun and games are over. Get serious, really serious. Get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way you'll get, your, get on your feet. 
And the New Living puts it this way, come close to God and God will come close to you. So instead of thinking about sin, think about Jesus. Because he's the difference maker, which brings us to number three. Jesus makes the difference. Look at verse 21. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, Jesus is the difference maker. Jesus was their teacher. Jesus was their model on how to live. Everything was in Jesus. And so, 3.1, throw off the old. This is what Paul is saying. Because Jesus is the truth, the truth means we need to throw off our old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. That's the first thing Paul says you need to do and be reminded to do. Throw it off. Too many followers of Christ were bringing their suitcase from their past and they were hauling it with them wherever they go. And every time they, they, they were in a crowd that was doing certain things, they'd go back in their old suitcase and put the old back on, you know, so they fit in. Paul was saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Throw it off, which is corrupted by lust and deception. One of the great theologians in the history of Christianity was Augustine, and he was born back in the year of 354 A.D., and that was, again, before our time. Augustine's mother was a follower of Christ. His father was not. He was a non-believer. As Augustine grew up, he began, he began modeling his father's uh, habits, and he became a womanizer. And, in fact, he became a sex addict back in that day. Um, but what happened was, as his mother had been praying for him, Augustine was in a, in a housing project, and there was a garbage can. And he was walking by it, and he heard a boy that said, take up and read, take up and read. And the boy wasn't even by the garbage can, but it was as if God was speaking to Augustine. And they were letters from Paul the epistles. Augustine picked them up and he started reading and he realized that he was a sinner. And he put his faith in Christ. Shortly thereafter, he's walking down a street and his former mistress by the name of Claudia was walking nearby and she yelled his name, Augustine, Augustine! And he just ignored her and just kept walking. She yelled, Augustine, Augustine. It's Claudia. And finally, Augustine responded, but it's no longer Augustine. See that? As he continued on his way. Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life. And so Paul is encouraging the church to do that very thing. It's no longer Augustine. That's my past. Number two, renew my mind. Verse 23, instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and, and attitudes. That's, that's, the, that's huge, man. That is, that's huge. I, man, my thinking was all messed up back in the day. You know, it, it was messed up thinking. And strongholds, man, I had all kinds of loopy stuff hanging up in my brain, the way I thought. And so when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I had to allow God to renew my way of thinking and to renew my mind. 
and it came through reading his word. So Paul says, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. It has to happen. If there's going to be life change in you, you've got to renew your mind. In Romans 12, 2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And it's done by reading the Bible, and that's allowing the Holy Spirit to, to have his way. Also, let me t- just put this in. You have to be intentional about what you allow your mind to think about. As a young man, nobody talked to me about stuff, you know, about life, about women, you know. But there was something on the inside of me that I wanted to live for the Lord, and, and every night, I had a record player in my bedroom and I put on Christian music to go to sleep by. Because as a young man, we all know we can put our minds into the gutter because nobody knows what we're thinking, right? You can let your mind go. There it goes. And so for renewing your mind, if you want to stop thinking about that and you're moving this way, You have to be intentional. So I would go to sleep thinking about the Lord. I want to encourage you to do that too. Maybe you need to put your iPhone on some worship music as you go to sleep at night. Let your mind be renewed. Think about the Lord on your way out as you're counting sheep. Sound good? All right, all right. And three, put on Christ, verse 24. Put him on. Put on your new nature. So we have to get rid of the old nature. You can't, put, you can't put the new over the old. You have to take off the old nature and put on the new nature. Who does that? You do that. You put it on. And it all comes part of renewing your mind. Put on your new nature, created to be like God. What is God's goal for you? He wants you to take the character of his son Jesus and model that. That's what he wants. That's what he's talking about here. Created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Yeah. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4, 7, train yourself to be godly. You know, who's going to do that for you? Nobody. You have to train yourself. How do you do that? You read the Bible yourself. You listen to what God is saying to you yourself. You become a self-feeder. If you're just getting fed on Sunday mornings here, dude, you're not going to make it to the week. It's the roller coaster for you spiritually. It's a day by day. One day at a time. You put on you put on that new nature. John Stott wrote, however, however holy or Christ-like a Christian may become, he is still in a condition of being changed. Isn't that cool? I'm still being changed. This old geezer up here, I'm still being changed. And how cool that is when we let God have his way in our lives, so we become more and more like him. Last Monday, man, I don't know if, if you were watching the NCAA basketball tournament, but I, I've been tracking it, you know, the, uh, Sweet 16, the final 
uh, Elite Eight and Final Four and, and that sort of thing. But I'll tell you what, it's, it was incredible, some of the backstories on these coaches and players that are followers of Jesus Christ. Kyle Guy, by the way, who was the MVP for the tournament, is a follower of Christ. And if you saw his post-game interview, he had a cross necklace around his neck. You know? The reason why he chose to go to Virginia is because Tony Bennett went into his home and he said, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And Kyle's mother said that was the one reason that Kyle chose to go to Virginia because he was the only coach that was upfront about his faith. Ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you something? Tony Bennett, he's, he's all over the news, man. I, got, I have so many articles here, you know, about his example and, and his faith. Um, you know, when, he, when they won in overtime, the first thing Tony did, I don't know if you saw, he bowed his head and he said, thank you, Lord, I'm humbled. And Tony says in the post-game interview, I do want to thank the Lord and my Savior for this opportunity. You see, just a year ago, Virginia, the University of Virginia, was a number one seed. And in the first game of the tournament, they lost to a 16-seeded team. That's never happened in history before. Now, you would think that would crush Tony. You know, he's a follower of Christ. God, why did you let this happen? But he and his team took that as fuel to work harder, to trust in each other. Tony prays for his players individually. He's upfront about his faith in the locker room. And so his players saw the stability in Tony, that he didn't blame God, he didn't feel sorry for himself. He said, this is a learning experience. And we're going to use it for the honor of God. And Tony's been doing that since they won that championship. Put on Christ. In other words, don't be ashamed of Christ. Take him into the public arena and let his light shine through you and be the difference maker. And so, as we close out this morning... I think of Lisa Whittle, who wrote The Sick of Me Life. Maybe you can identify with her. I must be honest, I need God to consume me more than my life currently does. The truth is, I'm sick of me. I am sick of being hot and cold for God, depending on my circumstances. I am sick of wrestling with the same things I've wrestled with for most of my life. I want God. It's not a bad thing when we are sick of ourselves. The sick of me life says, I'm tired of being halfway in with God. I want to get off the spiritual roller coaster where I'm good one minute and, ne- and the next I don't want to pray or read my Bible. I want to make progress. I want to be free from the chains that have kept me bound. I'm tired of, of trying to control everything. I want to finally know and rest in God's ability to take care of it all. Here's something beautiful. If we want God in all these areas and in any way we need him, we can have him. But we have to be tired of our usual life. We have to get to the point where we say, I'm sick of me. It is in this posture of humility where God can change things. It's here that he moves, alters, heals, and takes over. 
assuring us with his love while helping us change. He wants us to come to the end of ourselves so he can redeem and use our life. And because it shows him we want him more than anything else, that's what he wants most too. Are you sick of yourself this morning? Huh? The roller coaster spiritual experience, Paul is addressing that head on in the church at Ephesus. And he's doing it at Life Church this morning. Is there a sin in your life that needs to be brought before Christ? Is there a suitcase of the old nature that you're hauling behind you? You need to get rid of it once and for all. What is God saying to you? And Father, we thank you today. That Jesus, you make the difference. Just all the way back in Ephesus, uh, a city We live in cities today. We live in villages today, Lord, that are not honoring to you. But, Lord, you allow us to be there to make the difference, to be your light, to model your character. And, Lord, when we go back to the old nature, we send a mixed message to those who are watching us. We don't want to do that anymore. Will you forgive us, Lord, if we've allowed our minds to become dark, our hearts to become hardened, if we've been living a shameless life? Lord, will you forgive us? Lord, we want to walk closer to you. That's our goal. to be like Jesus. That's our goal. Help us do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.